Hey guys, and welcome to Hacked Off. This time I'd like to talk a little bit about the kinds of security testing that people don't consider immediately. So when we engage customers and we want to talk about the kinds of ways that we can test their security, people often tend to fix on just the default things. So vulnerability scanning, infrastructure security assessments, web application security assessments, that kind of thing. So I picked one out today, just a different kind of competency that people have heard of, but maybe haven't considered that their organization should have. So what I've got down is I've got social engineering and physical access. Those are two different things, but they're uh, related. So I figured I'd talk a little bit about the kinds of things that we can do during a security test involving social engineering and physical access, just so that you guys can see if you think it would be something of benefit to your organization. And also sometimes just because it's kind of a funny thing to talk about in terms of when you look at simple things like phishing emails or coercive emails sent to staff members, people uh, presume that there's going to be a certain percentage of their staff who would fall for those things, who could be coerced by uh, a malicious actor, but don't necessarily think of, well, what's the next step? What does that mean in terms of you know business risk? Okay, so somebody clicked a link in an email or fell for a scam. How can that actually affect our organization? So I figured I'd talk a little bit about that today. So starting right at the beginning, for social engineering, what do I mean by that? Because when we use the term social engineering, people often fixate on just phishing. So phishing is the act of sending a coercive or malicious emails to a staff member, but that's just one aspect of social engineering. Social engineering is a malicious communication with somebody, but it doesn't have to be an email. I can just as easily call somebody up and perform coercive actions or send them a text message or a LinkedIn message or something like that. And a lot of people will be thinking, yeah, but how do you get my phone number? And that's not really what I want to talk about in this particular one. I just want to talk about the fact that um, communications with people can be broader than just specifically an email, but we can perform the same kinds of actions across those kinds of things. So with social engineering, it's coercive communications. I'll then move on to talk about physical access. So this is a similar thing. It comes under the kind of category of social engineering, but this is the breaking into buildings side of my job. So I'll cover those off both within this talk because they are related. It's still coercive actions to staff members, but the uh, end result or the benefit to the organization might be a little bit different. So when we're targeting staff members and we're sending them malicious communications, we're going to try and trick them into doing something. Now, of course, you've seen scam emails where an attacker might be tricking staff members into uh, sending funds, sending money or something like that, you know, traditional fraud. But there's a lot more things that we can do. And certainly on the technical side of things, so to enable a hack into our own organization or to enable a data breach, we have a lot of um, more ways in. So if we're sending phishing emails or phishing social media messages like LinkedIn or tweets or those kinds of things as staff members, what are we trying to do? So for phishing, I think there's probably three different kinds of attacks that I would commonly use during a penetration test or a social engineering engagement. The first is trying to coerce staff members into disclosing credentials. Now, how much impact that has from a business risk side of things depends greatly on the organization, but generally for every pen test that I do, it would be useful for me to extract credentials from staff members. Now, this is a cool thing because a lot of people have considered uh, simple attacks, simple phishing emails, 
but haven't necessarily thought of the range of scenarios that we can put together. So we'll talk a little bit about credential theft in a second, but the other two kinds of things that we we'll try and do is client exploitation. So that is where we cause a staff member to click a link in an email and something bad happens to them. That's the technical exploitation side of things. And that can be either just directly targeting that staff member's machine, so something simple like, can we infect that staff member's machine with ransomware? Or the third thing that we can aim to do is to say, can we use that staff's uh, machine, can we compromise their device and use that as a foothold into the internal network? So simple attacks like credential theft or information theft, more advanced attacks like infecting that user's machine or then taking it one step further and infecting that user's machine as a foothold into the wider network. So we'll start our credential theft. Now, a lot of people have seen the kinds of uh, simple phishing emails that we see and have presumed that all of the scenarios that we get for these coercive emails are the same. And actually, they can be really wide. And I think it's one of the weaknesses with security awareness training that a lot of organizations do is they don't really have that creativity. So you'll say things like, oh, you shouldn't click links in emails, or you shouldn't give passwords to people that you don't know, that kind of thing. But you don't really uh, explain to staff members why that's important. And I think more importantly, from one side of things, you don't explain the range of attacks that a um, malicious person could use to extract credentials from someone. And I think if you talk to the average staff member and said, would you give your password to somebody that you don't know and trust, they would say, of course not, that's a silly thing. But then when you perform a phishing assessment, the huge percentages of staff are disclosing them just because there's that disconnect. They don't realize what they're doing. When we're sending coercive emails, we're trying to trick a staff member into disclosing credentials. We're not trying to ask them directly what their password is. So just a couple of kind of phishing emails that I've used uh, over the last year, which I think have been particularly effective. And, and definitely if you're considering performing uh, a phishing assessment, either in-house, just your IT department doing something simple or going to a, a provider and saying, hey, send some malicious emails to us and see what happens. Um, one of the things that I did a couple of months ago, uh, in fact, it was just before Christmas, was I sent an email to uh, staff at one organization of just a gift voucher. So you can imagine like an Amazon gift voucher or a store card gift voucher, where when the user clicks the email, it sends them to a logon page that looks like you know Amazon's or, or whichever vendor it is. The idea being that the staff member has an additional step between them seeing this email and then being asked for credentials. So they don't necessarily think, oh, this is a scam email. It's someone trying to coerce my password out from me. But they see this and they think, oh, I've been sent a gift card and they want to investigate that. Also, a lot of these uh, phishing emails or coercive emails are effectively playing on, can you get an emotional response from the staff member? So if you think just before Christmas, you know, the, the 15th, the 18th of December, can you send some Amazon emails out to staff members that say, hey, you've been given a £20 gift voucher or something like that. How many of them would be balancing the security of your organization with just greed? How much do they want that 20 pounds is what I'm trying to say here. And whether there's a disconnect between they click the link and then the next step is them being asked to log on to their Amazon account or log on to their store card account or something like that, they wouldn't necessarily realize that that's the same thing. A staff member, you would imagine, is not going to hit reply in an email and type their password into the email. But if they click a linking and being asked to log into a website, they might not realize that they're being coerced there. Another weakness in security awareness training that can allow for this kind of thing to work would be where 
companies have explained risks to staff members but haven't explained the justification behind that. So an example might be where an organization's security awareness training talks about typo squatting. So typo squatting, if you've not heard that term before, it's where when we're trying to set up a malicious website, we just misspell the organization's name. So if you're trying to spoof a Facebook website or something like that, it might be Facebook or just some uh, subtle misspelling of the, the target or victim website. And if your security awareness training includes just things like that, so you're telling staff members to make sure the email has correct spelling, make sure the web address is correctly spelt, they might not realize that the attacker might simply just register a different uh, website address. So if you're targeting your organization, we could register uh, instead of, you know, companyname.com, because presumably that's taken, we could do something like company name IT services, or company name system alerts, something like that. Something that can sound genuine within the context of the campaign that we're launching, but is correctly spelled. So a savvy staff member who's looking for typos and things like that wouldn't find some and therefore might not necessarily have that kind of a paranoia switch be triggered in their brain so that they think, okay, this might be a scam. So for the Amazon one, for example, you could register something like uh, giftvouchers.com or something which is available and contextually relevant to the scenario, but wouldn't necessarily trigger a staff member who's been taught to watch out for typo squatting. Another thing that we've seen previously on security awareness training is where uh, staff members are told to look out for the padlock in the web browser or the HTTPS. Now, this is a good thing to teach staff members to be aware of the benefits of HTTPS. More accurately these days, we should probably call it transport layer security, TLS. The thing is, with transport layer security, what that's actually doing is telling the staff member that that connection to that website is secure, it's uninterrupted. HTTPS adds transport layer encryption to that connection. It doesn't tell the staff member that that website is legitimate. Now, it can as a side effect if the web address or the host name is correct, but if a staff member doesn't understand that nuance and is just told, look for a padlock, and if you see a padlock, the website can be trusted, then that makes phishing much easier, especially where you can register a contextual host name, giftvouchers.com or something like that. If a staff member is taught to trust padlocks, that can be used against them. So what's a different kind of scenario that we could put together? If we were, say, targeting an organization as opposed to doing a, a more generic phishing email, you'll hear that distinction between uh, phishing and spear phishing, where spear phishing is a targeted attack. Uh, one that I did a little while ago, which uh, actually wasn't my idea, it was something that I was just talking to a colleague about and it sounded like a good idea, but it's a similar kind of thing. Can we cause an emotional response from a staff member? Again, playing on greed, because it seems to work. We emailed a selection of staff members at one organization. A simple email, it was just two lines of text and two images. And the two lines of text read words to the effect of, we're rolling out company mobile phones. If you have a company mobile phone, you can get an upgrade. And if you haven't got a device yet, you can select what kind of device you would like and you'll be issued a company mobile phone. So that's a benefit to the, the user. It isn't the, the stereotypical or more common phishing email of, you know, what, what do we most commonly see? Things like, oh, there's a problem with your bank account or there's a security alert on your social media. A lot of phishing emails have traditionally been uh, negatives, but in this context, it's a positive. And again, might not necessarily trigger the staff members' paranoia if they aren't expecting this kind of thing. So send them an email that says, hey, we're rolling out staff devices. And then the question that you can pose to staff is, do you want a Samsung or do you want an iPhone? It's playing on that, oh, are you Android, are you iPhone, that kind of thing. And a staff member might see this and think, oh, this is a benefit. You know, I want an iPhone or I want just a company device so I can make you know, my business phone calls on it, that kind of thing. And they'll think, oh, that's a benefit to them. 
And then if they click the link in the email or if they need to register for this device, you can ask them then, okay, to register your interest in getting a new company mobile device, we're going to need your email address and your password. So you can lead that on again where it's one step away. Oh, we're going to need your credentials if you need that. So I talked earlier about um, causing an emotional response from a user, and the two examples that I gave were effectively playing on greed for staff members. I do that habitually because I found that it's worked in the past, but it isn't the only way that you can do it. If you need uh, somebody to interact with an email or if you're trying to coerce somebody into performing an action, just any kind of emotional response. Think of the one I mentioned a second ago. There is a security alert on your account. What are we trying to do with that, with that kind of coercive email? We're trying to worry the person into performing an action. Hey, click here to get your £20 Amazon gift voucher. We're trying to use greed to get the user to perform an action. Another way of doing it, of course, would be something like, can you annoy the user into performing an action? So you could do something simple like um, just pretend to be a spam email. So send them something uh, repetitive, something common, you know, hey, thanks for subscribing to this newsletter. You'll receive a newsletter every hour for the rest of time and just annoy them. Include an unsubscribe link or something like that in the email and see if you can get them to, to click the link and then start interacting with you for your social engineering. So one of the things that comes up quite often is, can you cause a security impact just by having a user click a link? And you can. There's a couple of things that apply here. First of all, if you create a phishing email and you send it to a user and you get them to click the link and it requests a, a page from a website that you as the attacker control, there's a privacy impact there because you'd know that the email address is legitimate and you'll know that the user has requested a page from a server. But you could also build that up to a direct security impact. If the user has common client-side software installed where that software is outdated, so this might be the web browsers or it might be a PDF reader or something like that. If that software is outdated, you can generally serve payloads from the web server as well. So it is possible through a simple link click to cause a secure impact. If that concerns you, then there's, of course, ways that you can address that. The general advice would be, well, I caveated that with if the software is outdated, so make sure the software on the client's machine is up to date and that mitigates a lot of the risks there, but it is a thing that can happen. Secondarily, if we're talking about causing the user to disclose credentials, as we mentioned earlier, through the uh, Amazon link or through the uh, gift card links, that kind of thing, then those credentials can be used on any system that that user has reused credentials on. So this is uh, talking about password reuse, that kind of thing. Of course, we can take the password that you disclosed thinking you were logging into Amazon, but a lot of staff members have reused the same password across multiple websites. You may not have heard the term, but a commonly applied term is credential stuffing. So what we refer to as credential stuffing is just the exploitation of password reuse. If you've used the same password on Amazon as you have uh, your company or on your work email address, then we could target both of those. Both of those would be impacted by disclosing them to the attacker. So I've talked a lot there about uh, phishing emails, and I did mention that, you know, maybe we won't send you it over an email, we'll send you it over a, a social media message or something like that. In fact, this year I did see my first uh, phishing fax, which is uh, the first time I'd actually used a fax machine in real life, but it's the same technique. How did that work? How did the phishing fax work? The same way that a phishing email did. A scenario was built up in the text, and then there was a web link to coerce the user to visit a website where the bad thing would happen. So yeah, there's a lot more to it than just phishing, but the general thing is always the same. Can we elicit an emotional response from the user and cause them to either disclose some information or perform an action on the attacker's part? 
The other side of social engineering then is physical access. I mentioned this at the beginning. This is the breaking into buildings side of my job. And I think it's a thing that a lot of organizations haven't necessarily covered in their security testing. And it's a little bit frustrating when you do something like an internal infrastructure assessment at an organization. If you haven't heard those terms before, it's just where we go to an organization, we plug our laptop in as if we're a staff member into the internal network and we perform a security assessment. Can we escalate privileges on the network, steal confidential data and those kinds of things? And when we do those assessments, sometimes organizations at the end of it, when we deliver the report, say, oh yeah, but this would only be possible if somebody was on our internal network or inside the LAN. Well, a physical access assessment is one of the ways to demonstrate that an attacker could do that. Okay, we could do it through social engineering, so sending a payload over an email that allows us to gain a foothold on that user's machine and then pivot from that user's machine onto the internal network, or we can just gain access to the building itself and see what happens there. Now, the, the context of this one varies greatly depending on the kind of organization that you work for and what your building looks like. We're pretty good here. We're on a private campus with a perimeter fence, so that makes it harder. But a lot of organizations, certainly those based in cities, have shared buildings. You know, they're multi-tenanted buildings there. There's other people who work for other organizations able to bypass reception and those kinds of things. So physical access assessment will affect different organizations in different ways, but it's generally definitely something that's worth considering. So I figured I'd just talk to you a little bit about how we put together physical access assessments and the kinds of things that uh, might lead you to wanting a, a phys access. Why would you want someone to break into your building? Well, it's the same as all of these security assessments that we do because there's something that you would like to test. So we talked about with penetration testing, you want to get someone to come in and find vulnerabilities in those external or internal systems. With physical access, it's the same thing. So what kind of vulnerabilities are we looking at? Well, one of the things might be something simple, like can an attacker, without prior reason or without a prior relationship with the organization, gain access to the building just simply to gain access to network? You know, can I come into your building and plug in my laptop and then just do the hacking side of things? Some organizations consider physical security as an assessment just because you have more things that are important than your networks. Now, if you talk to the IT team, they'll in inherently start talking to you about server security and patches and things like that. But staff members print documents out and printed documents can have confidential data on them as well. So if we can walk around the building and gain access to printed documents, then that's a problem in itself. So I think the way that I'll address this is just to talk to you a little bit about how we put physical access assessments together and then you can take from that the kinds of things that you might want to assess. Be it something simple like testing your policies, do people really challenge strategies, or be it leading up to another assessment or leading up to a bigger assessment, like an internal infrastructure assessment, something like that. One of the things that we do is this intelligence gathering or mapping exercise. So if we're going to break into a building, we need to understand, you know, what's the layout of the building? Generally, we don't do that through like Google Earth or Google Street View, something like that. We'll physically go down to the premises that we're trying to gain access to and we'll take a look around at what's, what's the norm for your organization. So at what time of day do staff members get there? What are staff members wearing? Those kinds of things. 
And what we'd be doing here is effectively trying to work out just the initial steps for if we were to gain access to this building, how would we go about doing it? Is the only option that we've got to go through reception? And then maybe we'll need some scenario to talk our way through reception. Or maybe you've got like a, a goods in entrance or like a, a smoker's entrance, one of those things where, you know, oh, you're not really supposed to go out of the side door, but it's convenient so people do. And maybe that's another way into the building. So we'll check out the building just from a perimeter point of view. Do you have a fence? Do you have security guards? Do you have dog patrols? And once we've come up with uh, what we think might be viable ways to gain access to the building, we'll put those together and we'll give it a go. Now, the thing to remember is for most organizations, for most just standard businesses, the way that I'm going to gain access to the building is probably just tailgating. A lot of physical access assessments come down to just, can I follow somebody into the building? Now, one of the controls that you can have for that is uh, things like uh, swipe cards, RFID cards, so that you can only gain access to the building if you swipe access. But if people hold doors open, then we can get through that building easily. A way to mitigate that would be something like a man trap or an anti-tailgate barrier. If you haven't seen anti-tailgate barriers before um, or you've not heard the term before, it's like what you see at the underground and subways and things like that. You swipe your badge, a barrier opens, and it lets one person through. It's supposed to prevent tailgating. The problem with those kinds of things is people often become overly reliant on those kinds of security barriers that they see commonly. So if you have anti-tailgate barriers, I find in my experience, staff members are less likely to challenge people because they think, hey, if they got through the barrier, then they must legitimately be here. But there's ways around those. One that I had success with this year, actually, with the uh, how to bypass an anti-tailgate barrier was simply that the organization that I was targeting have a fire drill at the same time every month. First Tuesday of the month at 10 a.m., the fire alarm goes off and they time everyone as they leave the building as part of their fire alarm strategy. Cool, awesome. That means that there's going to be several hundred people leaving the building at the same time and a few mo few minutes later, everyone will be going back into the building. And it turned out for this organization that is targeting, when everyone goes back into the building, they just open all of their barriers because they don't want everyone to be outside and the delay of people, you know, not doing work, those kinds of things because of just this fire alarm test. So they open all the barriers, it lets people get through more easily. And of course, it allowed us through. And in that particular case, when we found out we're walking around in the building, nobody actually challenged us because everyone just presumed, oh, they've come through the barrier, they must, you know, supposed to be here. Well, sometimes it's easy things like where organizations have visitors passes and if you're wearing a visitors pass, you get left alone. But that visitors pass might be something like a simple printout just with the company logo and the word visitor on it. We own printers too, we can print those out. So if you do have visitors badges, maybe they shouldn't be so easy to forge. So yeah, when we're testing the uh, physical security of an organization, we'll check out the building, we'll check out what staff members are wearing, and then we'll try and find an appropriate entrance into the building, be it through reception or be it through a side door or something like that. One of the things that comes up when we talk to uh, customers about these things is they don't realize that very often we send more than one person. The most common is to send a couple of assessors to do this kind of thing. One of the reasons behind that, of course, is if you had paid for us to do a security assessment, physical access assessment, and we sent our uh, consultants down on the day to do the test, and at five minutes past nine on the first day of the test, a consultant was challenged and didn't gain access to the building, you wouldn't think much of that assessment. You wouldn't think you'd got your money's worth. So we sent two people so that we can have a second chance at it and see, can we try a slightly different approach to see if that works? But through experience, we've found a few funny things from that. So one of the things that I've seen previously on a test is 
where the consultant is challenged, you know, oh, hey, you're not wearing a security badge. I don't recognize you. Who are you? And the second person can come over and explain, oh, no, this person's with me. And the challenger, the person who's caught this stranger out for not wearing a badge, is suddenly confronted with two people. And it's that two versus one. We find that, you know, they're less likely to pursue that challenge. They're more likely to just be talked down from it. So it's those kinds of things that we gather through just experience, through having done so many of these that allow us access to buildings, be it simple things like tailgating or be it simple things like sending a couple of consultants. So what do we do when we actually gain access to the building? We've just gotten through reception, we've either walked our way through from a distraction technique or we've managed to sneak our way in through a side door, something like that. Well, it depends on what the customer or what your organization is looking for. You can imagine there's three main things that we do. The first is just hang around. Hang around and see if people challenge us. If it's policy enforcement that you're trying to test, then we can walk around the building and see if anyone asks us what we're up to, see which areas of the building we can get access to and those kinds of things. Or we could even just build up the suspicion from being just a person walking around the building to doing more and more suspicious things to see at what point people challenge us. I think a lot of organizations rely on staff members challenging um, strangers. And in my experience, it's very, very rare during a physical access assessment to actually be asked who you are or what you're there for once you're inside the building, once you're through that perimeter. So the first thing is policy enforcement. The second thing I mentioned earlier, and that would be, can we gain access to the network? Now, this could be a simple thing like, can we bring a device with us and plug it into the network to gain network access? So either a, a laptop that where we've got our hacking tools loaded on it, or it could be, can we gain access to a staff member's device? Now, you have to bear in mind the, the difference there in terms of the difficulty for the attacker. If we're plugging an unknown device into the network, there'll be difficulties like 802.1x. If you haven't heard that term before, it's network access control. And it's a technical enforcement to prevent unknown devices from connecting to the network. But if instead of connecting an unknown device, if I find a staff member's laptop who's, you know, they've gone off to lunch and they've left the laptop unlocked, we don't have to worry about those uh, technical protections. The device is expected, it's trusted, and it allows us access to the network. So if you have uh, NAC, uh, network access control, something like that, and you want to see how effective it is, maybe physical access assessment can allow us to demonstrate that. If we're getting access to staff members' devices and they're unlocked, then of course there's all of that staff members' uh, confidential data, the contents of their email inbox, those kinds of things. But we could just use that as a jumping off platform into the wider network. So we're effectively building up to a build review there. Can we break out from a normal staff member's low-privileged user account into administrative access on their device or building up across the network and doing privilege escalation? There's those kinds of things. Technical attacks where the foothold of the starting point is just a stranger, an intruder into the building. And then the third thing, of course, is what I talked about earlier, which is just can we gain access to other things like printed documents and those kinds of things. I've done it before in um, physical access assessments where the place that I've hung around in the building once I've gained access is just next to the printer. We don't need to physically steal documents to steal their content. You know, I've got a mobile device with a camera on it. I can just take photographs of those documents. And if there's anything confidential on it, then we can take that as well. Or wander around an office complex and see what kinds of things people lay around. I mentioned earlier that I find it very rare through experience for most, you know, standard organizations. If I'm wandering around in an office for people to challenge me, if that's the kind of thing that you're testing, then 
I would expect the assessor in many cases is just going to wander around the office and start getting bored and start uh, misbehaving. So maybe we'd do things like, you know, can we gain access to the meeting rooms? Can we gain access to the HR room where, you know, the staff folders are and those kinds of things? I've joined meetings before whilst doing physical access assessments just to see how far can we go before somebody challenges us. It's actually a good thing to bear in mind is meeting rooms. Um, if I gain access to a building, you can imagine that, like me as the assessor, my adrenaline level is going to be pretty high when I first successfully, you know, talk my way past reception or sneak my way in through a back door and that kind of thing. One of the things that I aim for is either the bathroom or a meeting room, just so they can take a few seconds and kind of calm myself down. And uh, for one thing, I don't know the layout of your office. You know, certainly if it's a campus and there's multiple floors and multiple buildings, those kinds of things. So you tend to take a couple of seconds in a meeting room or something like that and plan the next stage of the engagement. But of course, meeting rooms very often have network connections and phones. Some of them even have devices and, you know, smart TVs, those kinds of things. So I might be able to do the entirety of the assessment from the meeting room. And of course, if somebody comes in and there's a stranger in a meeting room, very often your first thought isn't, oh, I don't recognize you, you're not wearing a visitor's badge and challenging them from a security point of view. It's probably something like, oh, actually, we've got this room booked. And then you make your excuses and you leave and they don't think of that security side of things. So there's those considerations as well. But in terms of the uh, getting access to documents and things like that, I've stolen folders before and I've even stolen an entire filing cabinet. In that particular case, the uh, filing cabinet was on wheels. We pushed it into the reception area. And uh, one of the things that came up from that was for this particular organization, the receptionist only worked so certain hours. It was something like it's a receptionist between 8 and 4 p.m. Uh, and in this case, me pushing my little filing cabinet through to reception, uh, they'd been replaced by a security guard for the night shift. So I pushed my filing cabinet into the reception area, panicked a little bit seeing a security guard, you know, high-vis security written on the back. And it turned out that the guy helped me out to the car park with the filing cabinet. He explained to me that I couldn't get the filing cabinet out of the front door because there were steps. So he'd have to open the side door for me. So if you think that with your organization, you know, your staff members have been trained, they've done their security awareness assessments, they've done their uh, annual training and they know to challenge strangers. Maybe you should just try that out and see actually if we get a stranger to come into the building, a security assessor to either look at network security or to look at data security, information security, those kinds of things. Just test it out. Might just be something similar like uh, policy enforcement or it might just be for you to get a greater understanding of the actual business risk. If you're thinking that internal network security isn't that important because it's only people who can gain access to the building that could exploit those issues, then maybe try it, see if somebody could gain access to the building. When I talk about physical access assessments with people who are either penetration testers but haven't done physical access before or people who kind of like want to do this as their job and that's why they're interested in, in uh, episodes like this one, one of the questions that often comes up is, oh, what kind of scenarios do you play? Or what kind of excuses do you come up with? And in one case, one person asked me, what kind of disguises do you wear when doing physical access assessments? Um, to be honest, the only disguise I ever wear is employee. For the most part, if I can do a physical access assessment and not actually talk to anyone, I find it much, much easier. You've got to bear in mind, even as an experienced physical access assessor, I still get nervous and I still kind of have a lot of things to worry about. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we're in buildings that we're not familiar with and you don't ever want to look lost. So for the most part, to be honest, if we can get away with it, we won't be interacting with staff members and things like that. Certainly for the initial, can we gain access to the building? And then if you want us to see if people will challenge us, maybe we'll go around and see how many people we can talk to, that kind of thing. 
We can even build that into just the psychology of how we do the assessment. So one of the things, for example, that I do when I'm trying to gain access to an organization and then spend quite a long time walking around you know, if I'm trying to find uh, unattended laptops and things like that. One of the things I do is I take a camera with me, ideally the biggest digital camera that you can come up with, you know, a high zoom lens and those kinds of things. Because if people ask you what you're up to or why you're in that area, tell them that you're taking photographs to the company website or the company magazine and ask them if they want to be in it. Nobody wants to be on the company website. They will leave you to whatever it is that you were doing. So I talked a little bit about social engineering, I talked a little bit about physical access, that kind of thing, but they're all broadly just, you know, coercing staff members into performing an action. But I want to know something from you guys. You've probably all received scam emails and phishing emails yourself. I want to know what's the best phishing email you've ever received? What was the scenario and what was the person trying to trick you into doing? (laughs) 